Well, this morning we are continuing to wrap up Luke chapter 11. Um, We're actually working our way through the entire book of Luke, and uh, we're doing it verse by verse, and we're having, well, let me rephrase that, I'm having a great time, and I hope you are too, but I'm thoroughly enjoying this study, and it's uh, been one that has really um, blessed me. Well, um, I'm kind of wondering a little bit about how did Jesus speak? You know, when we read things here on the page, um, it doesn't actually give me a tonal inflection. I can't tell whether um, there's anger, if it's being sensitive, whether he's being gentle, whether he's being... You, you can't, from, from the written page, it's hard to understand just with what motivation he's actually speaking things. I, I remember when I went to England, they taught me how to preach outdoors. And because I didn't use any microphones, I had to learn to raise my voice. And because I did it quite a lot, my vocal cords uh, were well oiled and well used, and I got to be pretty loud. So when I went to Germany and I would preach, I, I even when there were microphones, I got kind of too loud. And I had more than one um, pastor come up to me and say, you're rather loud, aren't you? <laughs> Thinking that I might be angry with them. And I wasn't angry. I was excited. But sometimes it's difficult to catch the difference if all you see is a particular way in which you hear things. Um, And it's interesting when you listen to people of a different language that you don't understand. Have have, Have anybody had that experience? You've been around people that were talking a different language and you didn't understand it? And you couldn't tell whether they were being nice, polite, mean, angry, upset? I mean... The the sounds were so unusual that it was difficult to gather just what was in it. And and so when I'm listening to Jesus talk in this part of the the scripture, I'm I'm sitting there trying to imagine what did it come across like? What What was the essence of his heart as he's communicating? And that is something that uh, I believe that... um, He's, he's very fascinating in the way in which he communicates. Now, there are two parts to Luke chapter 11. The first part deals with prayer. And there's three aspects of prayer that we looked at that Jesus was teaching them about when he, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he, he taught them how the, the critical parts of what prayer is about. And then he goes from the prayer time and everything else in this chapter is the result of one event where Jesus meets this deaf, mute, deaf and dumb person and heals him. The mute person speaks and immediately there is quite a ruckus 
that comes about and everything in the rest of the chapter, including what we're about to read, is the result of that event. Now remember, the guy is deaf-mute, and he suddenly has the ability to hear and to speak, and his life is changed. He's no longer feeling that he's been rejected by God. It was because of his sin or the sin of his parents. Suddenly, all of this condemnation that he's heard all his life is gone. He can go get a job. He can get married. He can have a family. His life, I don't know how old he is. I don't know his circumstances. All I know is that God loved him and performed a miracle in his life, and his life is changed. <laughs> I mean, it's a great day for this guy. I mean, he doesn't know who Jesus is. I mean, he assumes he's a prophet, I'm sure, but but his, his approach is, my life is different. I, it be, a few minutes ago, I was deaf and dumb, and now, <laughs> this is different. My life has changed. And the response from the three different groups that are there, the first one, they're astonished. The second one says, well, he did this because of the chief of demons. And the third one says, well, we need to have another sign. If this guy really is a prophet, he needs to prove it to us. The fascinating thing about this to me is that when Jesus responds to the people that have just come up with this, all three of them, he addresses all three of them. The people who are astonished, they're just full of praise for him and his mother. And he says, wait a minute, those who need this praise are the ones who hear and do the will of God. I said, don't, don't start you know, given me anything, you need to understand that you have to hear and obey God's word. The folks that said that he was full of demons, he doesn't laugh them out of the park. You know, when I think about some of the um, reactions that I have had and other people have had, if somebody were to say, well, you're just full of demons, um, I remember once in my younger years, when I was pastoring up in, uh, in Pennsylvania, I was single, and um, they didn't like the idea that I was single, I guess, and somebody started to spread the rumor that I was a homosexual, and so I went to visit a judge and a lawyer, and I let them know I wasn't going to put up with this. I was going to combat this right away. This is... This was, um, you know, libel, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for it. But Jesus doesn't respond that way. He, he comes back and he says, you know, instead of saying you're stupid or how could you come up with an idea like that, he just says, you know, a kingdom that's divided against itself can't stand. <laughs> in other words, he has an entirely different approach in how he deals with people that are directly accusing him. And the other ones who say, well, you got to prove it to us. Show us a sign. I mean, dear me, he just performed a sign. The deaf-mute guy got healed. You know, how stupid can you be? The guys are sitting there seeing the guy talk and, and hearing him talk. And they're saying, well, he still has to prove to us that he's really a prophet. And he, knowing their thoughts, replies to their, I mean, he's being prophetic. He's not sitting there condemning them for their stupidity. Is that interesting? 
I mean, my reaction would be, you silly mutters, you know. Dear me, open your eyes, will you? How can you be like that? Who says that you're the one who determines whether, whether God has to prove himself or not? I mean, do you understand how stupid that is? <laughs> That's how I would react. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't come at them that way. But he goes on and he says, oh, you know, the only sign you're going to get is the sign that foreigners repented when they were, when they were confronted with the truth of God's word, whether it was the Queen of Sheba or whether it was the evil city of Nineveh, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get something where the word of God confronts you and it's going to transform your lives or not. And you're going to have to make a choice. Now, there is a Pharisee in this crowd and as we read last week, the crowd has increased. This is all the background to what's coming up. The crowd has increased. And so the Pharisee invites Jesus to come and eat with him. And that's where we pick up the story here in Luke 11 and verse 37. Luke 11 and verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that Jesus, he, had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe and of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, because you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute 
in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Amen. Well, here's the situation. A Pharisee comes and invites Jesus to have a meal with him. And it's not just the one Pharisee and Jesus, but he invites the elites to come and be a part of this. So there are other Pharisees and scribes who initially are called lawyers, later they're called scribes. <laughs> but he's got these lawyers and these Pharisees. These are the legal and the religious population, the leaders that are in this area, have come and gathered together and I'm not sure what their motivation is. It doesn't tell us what their motivation is, why they invited Jesus in. But they left all the other people, the deaf mute and all the hangers on and all the other people that were outside. They're left outside. And so this seems to be a gathering of, of the elites. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus can go from meeting with people like you and me and then he's also comfortable in going to meet with the leadership of the region. He doesn't have a problem meeting with anybody. He is, he is secure in who he is. He's not, he's not concerned about what people think or are going to say about him. He's got an entirely different approach to how he greets and meets with people. Now here... He comes in, and remember, he just finished telling them the story. If you remember from last week, he just finished telling them about the good eye and the bad eye. He's just finished telling them that, that the, the uh, good eye is when you see that there's a need and you meet the need, and the bad eye is when you are greedy and self-centered. And uh, uh, Glenn said to me, he said, that's a good definition of a narcissist. So you're being narcissistic and, and you, you cover your eyes, then that is a bad eye. And then we read in Proverbs that if you have a good eye, you share your bread with the poor and God blesses it. But if you have an evil eye, then many curses will come upon you. So there's this, there's this understanding that Jesus brings into the discussion that deals with, with possessions, deals with how do we deal with the things that we are stewards of and responsible for. And now he comes to eat with the elites, and the first thing that comes up amongst them, the first thing, <laughs> is that the Pharisee who invited him in is thinking to himself, wait a minute, he didn't wash his hands right. You know, you know when you go into 
uh, a restroom around. If, if you've been to a restaurant or to a store recently, you go in, they've, all of them now have these things that get, tell you how to wash your hands and what's right and what's wrong. And, and uh, have you seen those? Anybody seen those? I remember the first time I went to uh, Uganda and uh, we were up in the, in the north, uh, uh, northeast of the country that had been going through a famine. So there wasn't much water. And you, when you met around and, and we were meeting with, with all these churches and there, there are just hundreds of people that would gather around each of the uh, meetings that we held and uh, they would have us share a meal. And so you're sitting on the ground and then somebody comes around with a pitcher of water and a little plate that has a bar of soap on it. And you put your hands out like this, and he just pours it over you. The water drips down onto the ground. It's hot enough that it quickly evaporates. Then you take the soap, and you, you fill it in with soap. And then when you're ready, he pours it again. I just thought to myself, that's so much like probably how it was in those days with Jesus, because you didn't have faucets. You know, people couldn't just go to a, a restroom and turn on a faucet or, you know, flush a toilet. You didn't have that. And that's the way it was in Uganda when, when I was there. And so here we are washing, washing our hands, and then you sort of do this, and then you let them air dry, and just within, you know, 30 seconds or so, your hands are dry. And then you can eat. And the reason why it's so important is because you're eating with your hands. And you have all the food on the inside, and you get some rice together, and you and, and they, like to, they, they like to grab it, and then they, they knead it with their hands. They say, you know, it's not just the smell. It's not just the way it looks. It's the way it feels. Before you put it in your mouth, and then oh, that's sort of how they, how they go to eat. So here's this incredible event where Jesus is with them, and I'm not sure whether they're inside or outside, whether they're lying down at a table or whether they're sitting on the ground, we don't know. But what we do know is that first, they're getting their hands washed. But this guy is complaining, not that Jesus didn't wash his hands, but that he didn't wash them ceremoniously. Now, I was looking at that. I don't know whether my brother here is a pastor too. Have you ever studied the Mishnah and what it says about ceremonial washings? I haven't. I, I had to do that this last week. But I took one look at this. This is from the Talmud. This is the additions to the laws of Moses. But in order to be pure, instead of just having the blood of Jesus to purify you, you needed to go through all these rituals. And there were different rituals for different kinds of washings for different parts of the body. And by the, it, there are 10 different types of washings, washings of pots and washings of, of hands and washings of feet and washings of body. I don't know. And for each one of those 10 things, you could have up to 15 or 20 different kinds of things that go together. And you're supposed to memorize all this stuff. You're supposed to know it. So there was a special ceremonious thing that you had to do to prove that you were equal with the Pharisees and Jesus doesn't wash his hands that way. He probably washes them just like you and I would. 
if we were given the chance in those days. And the guy is sitting there in his own mind condemning Jesus for not, he's a teacher and he's got this incredible following, but he's not doing it right. He's not doing it the way that we think that he ought to be doing it because we've understood the law of Moses and the law of Moses, in order for it to be fulfilled, has to be done in particular ways. And we've worked this all out over generations and it's been passed down to us and we studied this stuff and he's not doing it right. Now, he's, he's not saying that, he's thinking it and Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And he turns to this guy and he says to him, you know something? You like to wash the outside. But don't you know that the one who made the outside made the inside too? You see, it's not just my hands on the outside that need to be clean. It's my heart. It's my mind. It's my soul. It's my will. It's my decision-making process. It's everything that goes on on the inside of me needs to be pure as well. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus, how did you say this? Now, the first time I read this or would preach on it or hear it preached on, I heard it something like this. He says, you're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did you not know that he who made the outside made the inside also? But give that which is within as charity. Do you see the good eye here? Give the stuff that's on the inside as charity and you're going to be clean. He picks up immediately on the teaching that he had just given before he came to lunch. And he picks up and he says, there's something wrong here because your lifestyle doesn't reflect the nature and character of God who is generous. Your lifestyle doesn't reflect the nature and character of God who loves. Your lifestyle doesn't reflect the nature and character of God who is full of justice and righteousness. You've got a problem with your heart. And you sit down and want to go through all these different cleansing formalities on the outside and it doesn't change the inside of you. Now, my question is, the next thing that he says is, whoa. Now, I took a look at the dictionary because... To be honest, that's not the way I talk. Does anybody talk like that? Do you go around saying, woe to you? Anybody do that? I haven't done that. I, I don't know. It's not something that is part of my vocabulary that I would go around doing if I ran into, say, a Muslim. I wouldn't say, woe is you, you know. But I always got the idea that when people read this, they were going like, but woe! That, that's sort of how I assumed they were doing it. I, anybody else think that? No, you guys are much too spiritual. I, 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 <laughs> I'm thinking he's mad and he's, he's attacking them. I mean, this is, but to, <laughs> going over this today, I'm sitting there thinking, but that's not who Jesus is. He, he's not 
He knows what, what goes on inside. He knows who we are. He knows our shortcomings and our failings. He loves us. The, the nature of God is love. The nature of who God is is that he loves us. He's not angry with us. He does give us a choice. So it's like, woe means great distress or trouble or affliction. And it's like he's warning them to say, you know, you're in great trouble because you've got real distress in your life because. See the difference? He's not sitting there, I'm cursing you because of this. But rather he's saying, you know, your choices that you've made bring about the distress and the unease and the trouble that you experience. And you're having difficulty seeing the love of God because of the attitude that's in your heart, the inside, the attitude in the way you think, the attitude that comes out of your decisions and your will. And here, he comes up with three woes, and I can hear in my inner ear now the tonal inflection of his voice that he's really yearning for them to repent. That his desire for them is not to continue in this course of action that's going to bring about trouble in their lives. So the first thing he says to them that is bringing this kind of trouble and difficulty is that they pay tithes on mint and rue and herbs. We're talking about, my wife has a herb garden. She has it in a couple of pots. But when she wants to grow other stuff, she uses much bigger area. If I've got a small bit of mint and I'm going to take a tithe off of that, I don't know how you weigh that out, but I mean, we're not talking about a lot, are we? And he's saying, you go down to the minutest detail to say that you are giving a tithe so that people can honor and respect you because you're giving 10% of your herbs. He's not talking here about his grain. He's not talking here about all of his possessions. He's not talking about the big stuff. He's talking about the little stuff. He says, but you neglect, and this is important, justice, and you neglect the love of God. And here he uses the word agape, which is God's kind of love. You are ignoring two very important things that are important to the God in heaven who created you both on the inside and the outside. And you think that because you're able to give him a little bit that he is pleased with you? You haven't understood who this God is. You neglect the most important things about him. Now, that brings trouble into a life. He says, well, you shouldn't have neglected doing the other, but you should have done this too. He doesn't say it was wrong to tithe. He says, don't neglect it, but, but don't use it as an excuse for not doing the more important stuff. 
The next thing, this, this one gets me. And to be honest, I, I can't think of a preacher who doesn't at some point struggle with this in, in their lifetime. And uh, at some point, you know, enough people come up and tell you how wonderful you are or you have several six or seven or 10,000 uh, friends on Facebook or whatever, and, and it can creep up on you. And without knowing, you could think that you were something wonderful. And he says to them, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The word love that he uses there is agape. The same word that he just used in the previous verse, where he says, you've neglected the love of God, but you put God's love first into your own arrogance of wanting to think that you are better than everybody else. Your pride and your arrogance is part of the reason for the trouble that you find yourself in. It's part of the distress and the affliction. It has nothing to do here with the ceremonial washing of your hands. It has nothing to do with tithing mint and, and your herbs. It has nothing to do with that. You are neglecting the most important things, and instead you are placing weight upon being somebody in society. And the final one that he throws out to them, it says, you're like concealed tombs that people walk over. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to figure that one out. I, I don't know that I have the right answer, but I'm sitting there thinking that most tombs are marked, but if the tombs weren't marked and people didn't know that there was somebody buried there, they wouldn't, they would just walk over it. And he's saying, you think you are somebody, but mostly the people out there know what you're really like and they could care less. <laughs> and the lawyer turns up, silly lawyer. If, if, he, had, if he had been a good lawyer, <laughs> he probably would have kept his mouth shut. But he said to Jesus, you know, if you say that to them, you're insulting us too. So he has, he has not heard what Jesus was doing, saying, this is the cause of your woe. Instead, instead, he's sitting there, you're insulting me. He says, I, 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 I feel insulted. How can you say that? And then he turns around and addresses all the lawyers in the house. First, he addressed all the Pharisees in, in the place. Now he's addressing all the lawyers in the place. Now, again, we don't know how many there are. We just know that it's plural. That's all we know. Yeah, it, it could be, you know, a handful. It could be 20 or 30. I don't know. But whatever it is, they, there are several of them. And so he turns to the lawyers, and again, he comes up with three woes. Isn't it interesting? He has three woes for the, for the Pharisees, and now three woes for the lawyers. And he says to the lawyer, Woe to you for loading burdens on people they can't bear. And then the second one is, uh, isn't that true that sometimes lawyers have an ability just to burden people with 
burdens that they just can't bear. I mean, I, I ought to be careful about this. My son's a lawyer, so I ought to be careful what I say, but <laughs> I, I'm still thinking about, you know, that's not really the objective of God's law to burden people. The objective of God's law is to set people free. It's, and, and so if you are burdening people, you have done just the opposite of God's intention as to why he gave the law. And here he says, that's a cause of trouble because you make things that are simple complicated. And now by making them complicated, it's the poor man out there who ends up carrying the big burden of all of this and they can't bear it. They haven't got anybody on their side that can represent them because you're so busy representing all the rich ones here that, that you are, you're placing burdens on people's lives that they can't carry. And that is a problem that God sees for you. It's causing you trouble and distress and affliction. And then the second one is you kill the prophets. That, that's terrible. At this point, he talks about the wisdom of God in which he's actually talking about himself, where he says that they kill the prophets and the apostles. And this is something that he is now speaking prophetically about himself, knowing what's going to come. He knows that he, as a prophet, as the Son of God, is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's just happened to have this discussion on the way, and he's laid it out, and he says, this is what you guys are responsible for. And the third one is, and this, is, this one bothers me a lot. He says, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter in yourself. And those that were entering in, you hindered them from doing it. It reminds me of what Jesus said, you know, that, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It'd be better if a man had a millstone thrown around his neck and he got thrown into the sea than, than stopping one of these children from entering the kingdom. That's the same kind of thing that he's saying here to the lawyers. He's saying, don't hinder people from coming into a relationship with God Almighty. Well, the result of this is not really what I would have anticipated. The result, I would have thought that I'd have had a Nicodemus or a Josephus, you know, one of the Pharisees that loved Jesus, who was a secret disciple. I would have expected them to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're right, forgive me. You just exposed me on the inside and, and what you've seen is right and I, I can't live with it anymore. Would you forgive me? Will you help me? Would you help me get rid of all the stuff that I've laid on burden my, my soul down with? Would you help set me free? I would expect that to be the answer. I would expect, just as I would any time I preach the gospel and I'm, I'm sitting in front of people who've never heard of Jesus before and I'm looking out at a sea of faces, whether it's in Albania or whether it's in Mozambique or wherever it is around the world that I've been, and I start to tell people about the love of God, I anticipate people making a response. I'll never forget when I was in a, a stadium in, in Albania up in the mountains and I, I asked a group of people, they were filling the side of the stadium. It's a small stadium, it wasn't a big stadium, small stadium. But there were a couple hundred 
young people that were there, if they wanted to receive Jesus. Have I told you this story? It's a crazy story. I said, you want to receive Jesus? I preached and you want to receive Jesus. And they all went like this. I went, oh no, what did I do wrong? I, I, I knew I preached what God gave me to preach. Why are they all shaking their heads like this? And somebody had to tell me later on, well, the truth is in, in Albania and in several Eastern countries, when they do this, it means yes. And when they do this, it means no. And I didn't know that. So they were all saying that they wanted to receive Jesus. And I, I thought I'd been a terrible failure. But in the, in the process here of people responding, the question that I have is why did they not respond in that way? But instead, their anger increases against Jesus and they begin to plot first degree murder. Their hearts are so hardened with anger and hate at the man who has just done them the greatest favor by showing them the light of what God's truth does when it en encounters a person. It can cleanse us on the inside or it can harden our hearts. Either we're going to take the step of faith and say, Jesus, how do I get rid of this junk that you have just pointed out is a part of my life? Or the question is, how do I get rid of you? I've got to get rid of one or the other. I've got to get rid of the man who makes me feel like I'm a failure, or I've got to get rid of the failure in my life and join the man. It's got to be one or the other. And their anger burns against Jesus to the point that they want to keep their position of, of eminence and authority, this stupid arrogance that they display they're wanting to hold on to rather than submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. They made a great, a great mistake by staying in their woes. They remained in the woes that Jesus had pointedly displayed and showed them. And instead of having a gentle heart that said, forgive me, God, transform me, come, let my life be changed. They hardened their hearts and thought about how they could do Jesus in. My friend, the question remains today the same for you, for me, for all those round about us here in our neighborhood. It's still the same. The question is, will we harden our hearts against Jesus? Or will we soften our hearts and ask the one who can forgive to cleanse us on the inside? He's the only one that can. Never forget the morning that I got up off my knees having prayed the whole night through and confessing all the sins I could think of and went to the window and I looked out as the sun came up and, and thought, I, I just met the one who created the color blue. I, I, I just met him. 
And then I realized that I wasn't carrying the burden anymore. It was like somebody had taken a ton of bricks off my shoulders and the guilt and the shame was gone. And the feeling that I had at that time was that I had taken a shower on the inside and I was clean on the inside. You know, that's, that's what Jesus was offering the Pharisees and the lawyers. And it's what he offers everyone who comes to him, regardless of status, regardless of education, regardless of what their position is in life. It doesn't matter. His heart is wide open to everyone who comes to him. Father, we pray that you wouldn't allow us to be eaten up by anger and hatred of the very things that are causing us distress and trouble, but rather we would bring them to you and lay them at the feet of the cross and ask you to cleanse and transform and change us on the inside. Let our lives be cleansed on the inside. Father, we ask that you would do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.